This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, June 27, 2011. I'm Caleb Brown. Forced sterilization has a troubling history in the United States. And now that one state is considering payments to those affected decades ago, perhaps it's time to reconsider the legacy of a legal icon, Oliver Wendell Holmes. So says Trevor Burris, a legal associate at the Cato Institute Center for Constitutional Studies. North Carolina is discussing paying restitution to the still-living 3,000 victims of forced sterilization of the 7,600 total people that North Carolina forcibly sterilized between roughly 1924 and 1974. Okay, now most people think of forced sterilization as this ridiculous uh, product of uh, Nazi Germany and and before, but the United States actually has a pretty uh, troubling history uh, with that procedure. Yes, if only it were actually a joke. In 1927, the Supreme Court decided a case called Buck versus Bell, and in that case, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote one of the upheld the sterilization law of a forcibly sterilizing a feeble-minded woman named Carrie Buck in Virginia, and he, as he upheld the law, he wrote. Perhaps the most heartless line in Supreme Court history, three generations of imbeciles are enough. When you say uh, feeble-minded, you did, did some air quotes that I want to make note of, but uh, what was Oliver Wendell Holmes doing and saying, I mean, what constitutional principle was he expressing in saying three generations of imbeciles are enough? Well, that's a good question because his ca- the case is actually devoid of citations except for one case to a 1905 case which upheld forced vaccinations. And in one particular instance, Justice Holmes draws a connection between compulsory military service, vaccinations, forced sterilization. All of these are for the good of the individuals and they're for the good of the country. These people are going to sap the welfare resources of the country. Uh, they're going to you know, live off the state. They're going to be committed. She was already committed to a mental institution uh, because of promiscuity, actually, which was good enough for feeble-mindedness of the time. Her mother had been con- called promiscuous. She had a child at 16, which was due to incestuous rape. And new research has shown that she was probably committed in order f- to save face of her family. And what of her her lawyer? There's a, there's a tie-in with her own lawyer here. Her lawyer was a proponent of the law, and uh, a guy named Paul Lombardo has done excellent research pointing out that it was probably a collusive case. He, de- he mounted a deliberately inadequate defense in order to get the new law upheld. Eugenics was actually somewhat going down. It was co- somewhat coming out of style. It was, it was really coined in the 1880s. And... Uh, a new guy named uh, Harry Laughlin, he r- wrote a new law that he thought was going to be impenetrable and would, it would find all the people who needed to be forcibly sterilized and it would create a new world where we wouldn't have any problem people. And uh, Buck v. Bell revitalized the eugenics movement in this country. And although in 1942 they ruled that you couldn't forcibly sterilize someone as penalty for a crime, it actually has never been totally overturned. And it seems that the last person was forcibly sterilized probably in 1981 in Oregon. So how does the great Oliver Wendell Holmes that people uh, revere come to write a majority opinion uh, that represents something that we, um, I guess, modern people or even people of the day uh, were beginning to realize was a terrible practice that uh, a civilized society shouldn't engage in? Well, for Oliver Wendell Holmes, who famously considered himself 
uh, almost a judicial bystander who would just simply allow the majorities to do whatever they wanted to do. He actually endorsed this law uh, in his own values. He, he told a friend once that as he wrote that decision, he felt he was coming close to a first principle of real reform. So on one hand, Holmes actually probably believed in this, like many intellectuals at the time did. Felix Frankfurter commended him on it. Justice Brandeis signed on to the opinion. All these people are paragons of progressive thought of the era. And eugenics was a progressive-minded thing that if we need to reform the world, we need to make people better. And of course, making people better has been a consistent theory throughout the history of governance and social thought. Eugenics is maybe the single lowest example of this, but it's, it never completely goes away. It's always there, making people better. So Holmes thought you can make people better, and he really believed in it. The reputation of uh, progressives today uh, seems to would, would be abhorrent uh, of this kind of policy. How did we get from there to here? Well, that... That is a long story. The most interesting part of that story is probably the progressives, you know, heartfelt belief in majoritarianism and belief that judges merely had to be allow the majority to enact its will. That became a belief that conservatives really took up in earnest in the 70s. And so the majoritarian ball can get passed back and forth between different sides depending on how you think the tenor of the country goes. Of course, at the end of the day, the founders, the Constitution, is not just a majoritarian document. It's a document that allows individuals to enforce rights against majorities, and that was a huge part of what the Constitution was. It doesn't merely enact a democratic system for a bunch of people to get together and vote and create the world. It also enacts claims that individuals have against those people. And we shouldn't ever forget that, that calls for extreme majoritarianism can end up in situations like eugenics, where if no one has any rights against it, then what complaints do they have? Trevor Burris is a legal associate at the Cato Institute Center for Constitutional Studies. You can get a copy of Cato's annual Supreme Court Review at our website, cato.org.